shone like gold in the hot morning sun. She took all the love that the poor boys had given and left me to die like a fox on the run. It's time for the news from Back Home Magazine. Today's news is about how to provide your home with some protection against forest fires. A series of wildfires scorched tens of thousands of acres in 2000, so far the worst year in over 50 years for fires. Several reasons seem to have contributed to this, including weather patterns, carelessness, and poor forest management. But, however a fire starts, few things are as terrifying as facing a raging wall of fire racing towards your home. Fortunately, there are some things you can do to provide at least partial protection for your property if you live in a wooded or remote location. The first, most important, is to make sure that rescue and fire equipment can make it to your property, if there is a fire. Just because you can make it up the one-way road in a four-wheel drive Jeep doesn't mean emergency crews can make it with heavy trucks and equipment. Check that right-of-way or driveway and see that it's free from overhead obstacles like tree limbs and make sure the roadbed is wide enough, 8 feet at a bare minimum, 12 feet wide, being much safer for firefighters. In addition to allowing fire crews in, a wide, safe path out can make all the difference in saving your life if you did have to flee from an oncoming firestorm. The second most important thing is to clear a perimeter around your home or a fire zone. This does not mean to go out now and start clear-cutting your property, but it does mean that you should take a close look at what vegetation and trees are in the immediate vicinity of your home. The idea of fire zones is not new, but it has been refined to include three distinct zones and suggestions for planting in those zones. The first fire zone represents the closest 5 to 10 feet around a building. In this area, you want to create a buffer of maximum fire resistance. Plants that are low-growing to the ground will offer little fuel, especially if they are succulent plants. You might look into the creative use of mulches, gravel, walkways, lawns, water gardens, and swimming pools the last two of which can also be used as a water source for firefighters trying to protect your home. Fire Zone 2 extends from the end of the first fire zone out to about 30 feet from the building. In this zone, you are further separating your home from surrounding vegetation and, at the same time, giving room to take a stand if the fire does come close. 
One goal here is to interrupt the fire's progress. Trees planted in Zone 2 should be at least 10 feet apart, measured from the overall canopies. Plants and vegetation might include shorter shrubs planted together with perennial flowers. Fire Zone 3 extends out from the end of Zone 2 into the edge of your property and any adjoining wild area. This zone can be planted with a wider variety of trees and plants, but be sure to clear debris from the ground, such as deadwood and dry plant material, because your goal is to minimize the fuel available during a fire event. More information on fire zone protection is available from Back Home Magazine at 800-992-2546 or on the web at backhomemagazine.com. The news from Back Home is produced in cooperation with WNCW Spindale, North Carolina, with support from AirCheck Incorporated on the web at radon.com. Back Home Magazine is published bi-monthly in North Carolina, south of Hendersonville, on West Blue Ridge Road, just east of the old Flat Rock. For all the folks back home, I'm Ryan Doyle. Thanks for listening. And you are listening to Your Community Spirit, the show about caring, sharing, and praying for the changes needed in the world as we know it. This is Ord Energy Mon, and I want to remind you to wake up! And this is Tree Song, and I want to remind you to uh, enjoy that crisp, <laughs> chipper, uh, awakening weather out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sun is out. <laughs> you could be as sleepy as you want, and as soon as you step out that door, like that, that 37 degree weather hits you in the face. And 27 like, degrees. 27. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought it felt like it was below freezing. Yeah. Hits you and you're like, ah, I'm awake. <laughs> I don't know why I'm awake, but I'm awake. <laughs> so, um, if you don't have something to be thankful for, check your pulse. Because <laughs> I think if you go out today, it's going to prove to you, you are alive. Yes. <laughs> the cool, refreshing taste of a Southern Illinois winter day. <laughs> All right. Um, last night was the vegetarian Thanksgiving dinner. And, of course, over 100 people got fed. And this year was a unique one. Well, not unique. Um, someone said that, like, oh, 10 years ago, this is how they used to do it, um, potluck style. Yeah. Um, the main courses were cooked, um, veggie stir-fry and salad and um, drinks. And then everybody brought stuff. And it was just like the community came together to eat and feed each other. And I was like, that was really, really fun. Yeah. I think it. I think the idea of having um, food shared with, well, a large community of people, is just phenomenal. Yeah, and there were so many dishes too. There were. I had uh, two plates and a bowl and a cup. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a guy, and I said, "How did you decide what to eat?" He's like, "Well, I went through and had one of everything." I was like, how would you fit that on your plate? He said, well, I had three plates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I tried the same approach. I got one of almost everything. So, yeah, and I went through the dinner line, the regular dinner line, and did that, and my plate was overflowing. And then I looked over and saw the dessert table. <laughs> oh. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to need at least another little plate. Yeah. Get some dessert before and it's And then when you, get to, when you get to your table, you have to have, like, an arc, 
archaeological mm-hmm. dig. So you just take it off layer by layer so you get the different tastes. Yeah. Otherwise, they get mixed up. <laughs> yeah. That's what you call family eating. Yeah, good stuff. So Thanksgiving is upon us. And um, turkeys are running for their lives. Yes. <laughs> That's you. Yeah, you're a turkey. <laughs> Who am I calling a turkey? Well, a lot of people. Let's let's talk a little bit of, about a few happenings. Um, this week is Hunger Awareness Week. And um, the week ha- is culminating at the Interface Center with um, a potluck dinner this evening um, at 6 o'clock. And there has been some phenomenal speakers. Um, one of them was Art Simon from Bread for the World. Um, if you want more information about, well, helping to feed the world, the website is just bread.org. So, Sounds good. Hunger Awareness Week. Um, I remember last year they actually had a hunger dinner. And w- as you came to the dinner, you were given, you pulled a country out of the hat and based on what country that was you were f- fed the food <laughs> that the average person got to eat you know in a meal yeah i think i'd want to pull the u.s <laughs> yes that, um <clears throat> you know some countries you got a bowl of rice and they didn't give you dirty water i don't think <laughs> no hopefully not <laughs> yeah but you know that's some people's so um this evening, after the potluck dinner, um, the organizers are asking people to take a 24-hour pledge of not eating, just to understand how it is f- other people in the world do this on a regular basis. Yeah. So, but they're going to feed you really good, and then yeah. you get 24 <laughs> hours. So Eat really well. You'll spend 24 hours digesting, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagine not eating really well and then having to not eat for 24 hours. Yeah. I cannot. I mean, so this is hunger awareness right now, and this is the end of Native American Heritage Month. Yes, Native American Heritage Month. There have been a lot of events for it, and here are a couple of the final events of the month that are coming up. Uh, Dr. Lisa King-Huth has a talk beyond We Are Still Here. Rhetorics of Native Identity and Speaking Presence to a Non-Native Public. That's coming up at uh, 7 p.m. in the Student Center, Ballroom A. And Dr. King, University of Kansas, analyzes how Native people are using museums and cultural centers as a public forum to affirm both their individual community identities and their general presence as Native to the non-Native public. For more information, you can... Contact Dr. Anthony Webster at awebster at siu.edu. And there's also an exhibit. The exhibit is called A Warrior's Story, an Oglai Lost Sioux Painted Buffalo Robe, uh, curated by Lori Huffman and designed by Amy Chase. This is at the Fainerhall University Museum. Today is Friday, in case you weren't aware. And on Fridays, when school is in session, there is International Coffee Hour, which is at SIU in the Northwest Annex Building B from 3 to 5 p.m. And in case you didn't know, Americans are also international, so feel free to go and mingle with other internationals from, well, 
the rest of the world. Yes, your chance to be a part of the international community. So in other happenings, the Vigil for Peace, uh, they have that every Saturday from noon to 1 p.m. That's on the corners of Maine and Illinois here in Carbondale by the Town Square Pavilion. It's been going on for a very long time now, and they keep it going every week to remind us of the importance of peace. And I do know that there are a lot of happenings in this town, but sometimes people forget to let us know about them, because we happen to be the happening guys. Yes. <laughs> if you would like something to happen, please email it to me, info at yourcommunityspirit.org. Or you could email it to me. My email is treesong at treesong.org. Did you oh. say or I could mail it to you? <laughs> so that means or I have comma. to. You I, have, it, uh, <laughs> I have to mail it, pass <laughs> it on to you, huh? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. nobody's going to actually send it. They'll expect me to mail it to you. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. I see how it is. So yeah, hopefully easy to remember. Treesong at treesong.org. And um, the. The news article that I'm wanting to talk about the most is, I spy something green. People spy on a climate activist while global warming goes unarrested. I uh, like that hut. Yeah. So, um, this is actually by Mike Tiddle, Tidwell in his own words. I'm not sure what's more shocking, the news that the Maryland State Police wrongfully spied on me for months as a suspected terrorist or that despite surveillance of me, officers apparently wouldn't recognize me if I walked into their police headquarters tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, I'm a former Peace Corps volunteer, an Eagle Scout, church member, youth, baseball coach, and dedicated father. I also happen to be director of one of the largest environmental groups in Maryland, a nonprofit that promotes windmills and solar panels in the fight against global warming. So imagine my shock to get a police letter last month saying I was one of 53 Maryland activists on a terrorist watch list that has been discontinued because, can you believe it, there's no evidence whatsoever of any involvement in violent crime. So he gets a letter that they're taking him off the list? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. That's kind of scary that, okay, we had you on a list, but we're taking you off the list because you didn't do any violent crime. Yeah, I'm surprised they even fessed up to the fact that he had been on a list. Right, so you're like, well, what did I do? <laughs> Matters turned especially Soviesque on October 14th when I called the police requesting a full copy of my surveillance file. A spokeswoman told me I could visually inspect the file, but... I couldn't make photocopies, I couldn't bring an attorney, and the police would be destroying the entire file after I read it. And bring a valid photo ID, she said, to make sure the one you say you are. Really? You spied on me, for God's sakes. <laughs> the mess all began last summer when astonishing evidence surfaced revealing that the Maryland State Police, under former Republican Governor Robert Enrich, posed as activists and infiltrated an anti-death penalty group, attending organizations' meetings and taking secret notes to send back to headquarters. Huh. What? The best part is that, you know, there was a lot more people at the meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it boosts membership. Yeah. <laughs> and what were they doing to me and my organization, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, during the surveillance program in 2005 and 2006? Bugging our phones, reading our emails, monitoring me as I walked my kid to the bus stop. 
I still don't know for sure. Yielding to public pressure, the police finally gave me a printed copy of my quote-unquote file on Uh October 29th. It raised more questions than it answers. Seven of the 12 pages were withheld without (laughs) full explanation. So out of 12 pages, they gave him five. And of course, uh, it raised more questions than it answered. Um, The pages I did receive, at least half of the words were redacted, marked out with a marker. So the five pages he got, (laughs) half of them were blacked out. So really he got like two and (laughs) and a half pages of a (laughs) 12-page document. (laughs) There was a photo of me on the last page lifted from my website, and on the first page there were the words, crime, terrorism, environmental extremism. What terrorist would that be? My file, what little of it I did have, makes reference to a morning speech given in Bethesda, Maryland, by then Governor Robert Enrich on November 17, 2005. A small audience of invited guests and journalists attended inside a classroom at Walt Whitman High School. Enrich wasn't doing any enough to fight global warming. The Chesapeake Climate Action Network believed, and several of my staff arrived to peacefully demonstrate and hold up signs that said things like, It's getting hot in here, Gov. But troopers with the governor's Executive Protection Division believe this was extreme, according to my file. For example, CCAN staffers invited high school students to hold up protest signs during the governor's speech. Pretty extreme, huh? There was no civil disobedience at the event, no one was arrested, no county, state, or federal laws were broached, the entire affair was utterly peaceful, above board, and appropriate. Political demonstrations exactly like this happened a thousand times a day in America. There were no media reports of anything unusual. Yet, the governor's security team considered this aggressive protesting. So afterwards, the troopers contacted the state's Homeland Security and Investigation Bureau. The result was creation of intelligence files of me and three of my staff. Now, ironically, I wasn't even at this meeting huh. or this protest. Yeah. But anyway, a case file was launched on me, nonetheless, on November 28, 2005, with my name, photo, job title, and no SMTs, scars, marks, or tattoos, and the declaration that no charges had been brought against me. Strangely, according to the police papers, there's no record of any intelligent gatherings related to me after the file was created. Just a narrative describing my staff's protest at this speech. With a climate disaster looming, I've worked for many years to promote clean, renewable energy, but perhaps the greatest contribution I'll ever make to this cause is the action I'm taking right now, standing up and working hard to keep the government itself clean. Mike Tidwell is the director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network and author of Bayou Farewell, the rich life and tragic death of Louisiana's Cajun coast. So, so I'm guessing since I haven't gotten that letter yet saying my file was uh, discontinued, <laughs> that they're still looking at me. Yeah, <laughs> everybody who hasn't got the letter that said they're not looking at you anymore. Uh, you gotta wonder. <laughs> you better wonder. <laughs> you like, don't want to assume, you know. I mean, I bet they have a pretty thick file on me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I've, I've been at a lot of things. I've, you know... Almost none of them have I organized, but I've been at a lot of events, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, 
And we do this subversive radio show, too. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they've uh, got got archives of it on their server, too. <laughs> well, they don't. Well, that would be... If our server goes down, we could just request the FBI to allow yeah. us to link to their server, right? Uh, yeah. Good deal. You're thinking, Treesong. They've got a free backup of all of our yeah. files. <laughs> all right. So what do you want to talk about now? Did you know that this week was World Toilet Day? <laughs> no, I didn't, but... Uh, I do now that I'm looking at our list of uh, <laughs> news articles. Okay, so World Toilet Day. Don't laugh. Too late. Aw, oh, dang. Don't laugh. This is serious. Did you know that 40% of the world's population, 2.6 billion people, don't have access to a toilet? I want to know who came up with the idea to go to the bathroom inside the house. Yeah, and to go to b the bathroom in water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, it's... It's like if you're rich enough now, you go to the bathroom inside the house and you cook outside the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to raise awareness of this global sanitation crisis and to celebrate a humble yet essential backroom, bathroom fixture, World Toilet Day is being proclaimed as November 19th. WaterAid has launched this campaign because without clean water and separate toilet facilities, diseases such as diarrhea spread and affect children. 5,000 a day die from illnesses related to poor sanitation. But it's not all grim. To support the cause... <laughs> now, how can they have us not laugh when they have put stuff like this in there? To support the cause, you can play Turtlewinks online. That's not Tiddlywinks, but Turtlewinks. Turtlewinks. <laughs> or you can play Poopla. Oh, you don't want to even ask about that one. Or you can take a tinkle test. The faint-hearted can just write a letter to publicize the cause or donate money. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting cause there. I I'd be interested to hear a discussion of uh, like water-based toilets versus composting toilets. Well, do you know that? Um, I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, they've got low flush toilets down to one pint yeah. of water, um, but you can't actually have a waterless urinal or a waterless toilet in the state of Illinois because it would put. Um, plumbers out of business so there's a really strong you know law on place that says you can't have waterless urinals huh. so um like i know people who live in st louis who've put in a regular toilet and a composting toilet and of course they don't use the regular toilet they just use the mm -hmm. composting toilet yeah they live downtown huh. you know and they they actually live off the grid downtown huh. solar and composting toilet and yeah. Um, bicycles, and so it is possible to live off-grid in the city. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty it's, impressive. It's probably a lot easier, actually, because um, ready access, because anybody who lives off-grid might, with their energy in their home, but then they have to drive. Yeah. So for me, it's been really hard to balance the two. I mean, I can live in town and not drive my vehicle, or I can live in the country and have solar. So eventually I'll have solar in town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you want more information about um, turtlewinks Turtly um, or t World Toilet Day, that doesn't mean that's the day that everybody shares your toilet. But um, the information is wateraid.org. Yes, and definitely a place to check out because... If you're going to play Turtlewings, you want to play it online. You don't want to play it in person. <laughs> so, 
Um, have you heard about the big three applying to try to, the big three automakers I applying have. to try to get some of this loan money? Well, a fuel and his money. Nick's fuel efficiency requirement from big auto loans, says the White House. To avoid quote unquote partisan gridlock and give U.S. automakers quicker access to a $25 billion loan, Congress should drop the requirements that the money be used to improve vehicle fuel efficiency, the White House said last Friday. Now, we'd argue, of course, that Detroit is very in, the, in this mess precisely because it dragged its feet on improving vehicle fuel efficiency. But maybe that's just more of the pre-$2 gas thinking, <laughs> you know? Straight to the source, the Wall Street Journal. So <laughs> I think I want to know, um, I'm going to quit paying my bills so I can get bailed out. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I need a cash infusion for me to continue to operate. Yeah, see, I, with a bailout of just a million dollars, you know, I think I'll be okay. I don't need billions. I, I accept $5,000. I yeah. mean, um, it's just, when, when are they going to bail out the, you know, the poor schmuck at the bottom? Yeah. It's like all the people who who screwed up are getting bailed out. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, right, right about now, I want to kick the government back out. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> well, see, what I feel like we should do, if we're going to give loans to automakers, we could give them to ones for making uh, electric vehicles. You know, like get, give Tesla, Roadster Company, uh, Tesla Motors, give them uh -huh. a loan. <laughs> give, uh, you know, even the big three. If you give it to them on the condition of, you know, make electric vehicles. Right. I actually saw a cartoon that showed um, Toyota, and they had the, they were selling apples, and they had all these nice shiny apples, and then there was GM with all these like rotten apples, huh. and GM was like, but 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 but, but. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. I think this has been another exciting, hopefully informative, half hour of your community spirit. Yes, and now we've got you all fired up so you can stay warm out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Get out, because you'll find out you're alive. You're alive.